0: It's so wonderful to be with you in worship today. What a great day to worship the Lord our God. I'm going to start this sermon a little bit differently than I have in the past. I'm going to start it with a joke. My husband was like, finally, you're going to tell a joke. Okay. Well, when I was preparing this sermon, this joke that I had learned when I was five years old, literally, my Nana taught me this joke. It popped into my head, and I was astounded that I can still remember this joke. It's a complicated joke from when I was five. And so it just feels like I'm meant to share it with you. So here we go. This is about a family of skunks. There's a mother skunk and two baby skunks. And the names of the babies are in and out. And whenever in was out, out was in. And whenever in was in, out was out. And one day, when in was out and out was in, Mother Skunk was looking all over for in, and she couldn't find him. So she sent out out to bring in in. And out went out to look for his brother, and after a short period of time, he brought his brother home. Mother Skunk was so excited, and she said to out, however did you find your brother? And out said, it was easy, instinct. It's going to hit you in a second. It is one of those where it, you get it on the ride home and yeah, it's, it may not be the perfect sermon illustration, but it may help you remember in days or years to come where we're heading in this sermon today, that we who are in are sent out to bring in those who are out who are meant to be in. Follow me. You see, we've been in a sermon series on the direction our faith can take us, all the directions. In a world that is so focused these days, so polarizing these days, trying to pull us to the left and the right, we believe that God is calling us to a much greater vision of following Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone through an up, in, down, and out way of life, up, worshiping the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, existing as one God, in, making room in our lives, in ourselves, to be still and know that He is God. Down, putting down roots and growing in a community where we are trying to put flesh on our faith and today out, where we experience ourselves moving outside of ourselves through the very outpouring nature of God, the movement and intention of God through us. It's a funny thing about directions. Good ones always depend on where you're starting from. It's uh, going to make a big difference if you get directions to Los Angeles, whether you're leaving from San Diego or San Francisco. It may make a huge difference uh, to get to California if you're leaving from Alaska or Hawaii. How long it might take you to get to Los Angeles may depend on if you're leaving from Paris or Culver City. Although the 405 is the great equalizer here, it's going to be about the same, but you have to take these things into consideration. In today's sermon, we are going to see that the starting point of the outward movement of God isn't in Christians themselves. It's not in human beings. The starting point of this direction is in God. It doesn't exist as an act of human will or even as an act of human love. It exists and begins in the nature of God, in the Trinity, the Godhead, the life of God being lived in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of Christ's nature in us. So buckle up and let's dive into the Godhead. From all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co eternal, of the same essence as the other and yet distinct, one God in three persons, equal in power and majesty. There's a person named Danny Hyde who wrote in a recent blog post that thinking about such things, the Trinity, the nature of God, brings me back to the basic Christian posture of adoring God's mystery. Oh, I love this phrase, adoring God's mystery. You see, I think that too often we humans insist That we have to understand this God before we can give ourselves to Him in adoration and worship. We want to call upon our logic, our rational thinking to understand this holy other being, all the while forgetting that this is not the way of love. How many of you have ever fallen in love? How many of you have ever loved someone or something so much? You know what I'm talking about. Love defies logic. We can observe love, we can think about love, but the only way we can enter into love is through adoration of its mystery by giving ourselves to it, by submitting to its call upon us. So now, call upon faith to imagine this God eternally existing outside of time and space and any created thing. Eternally existing as one God in three persons, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Imagine this community of three existing as love, infinitely in community with one another, delighting in one another, glorifying one another. To glorify simply means to praise, to serve, to love. And love by its nature is always relational. It occurs in relationship with another. It takes more than one single, solitary being to be in love. First John 4.16 quite simply says, God is love. The triune God is relational within the Godhead, within the being of God. God needs nothing else to exist in love. In other words, God did not need to create the world to have something to love or to make something that would love Him. God minus creation is still God. Creation does not add to or take away anything from God. God is fully whole, fully complete, in need of absolutely nothing to live in infinite joy, infinite love. We know this mystery, this internal nature of the Godhead. How? We know this through the very words of Jesus. In the upper room, with his disciples gathered around him the night before he was crucified. He was talking with them. He was speaking plainly about himself and about things that were about to happen. I'm reading from John 17, verses 1 through 5. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Jesus is asking the Father, when I get through what's ahead of me, when I see you again, when I come again into your presence, give me back my glory The glory that I emptied myself of willingly in order to dwell on this earth among these humans who we love so much. Return my glory to me. Still praying to God, his father. Jesus asks for protection over all of these disciples whom he loves because he is sending them into the world. John 17, 18 says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And his prayer is for protection. Reading now, still in John 17, reading from verses 20 through 24, Jesus continues to pray to God the Father. And he says, I ask for protection, not only on behalf of these, these in that upper room with him, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. Here Jesus is envisioning generation after generation after generation of disciples going out, being sent into the world, and many, many coming to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So here Jesus is praying for us today in this year he says i ask on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one as you father are in me and i am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me the glory that you have given me i have given them which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world." Before any created thing existed, the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. And if this isn't quite enough to stretch our brains, to open up our souls, to have our faith extend farther than we ever thought it could, check this out. In Revelation 13, it says that the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lamb was slain from the creation of the world. At the foundation of the world, Christ was crucified. So let's review this triune God. This triune God who existed as love before anything was ever created, who was happy and complete and needed nothing because the Holy Trinity was enough in and of itself to live forever in delight and enjoy this inward facing God that gave God glory to one another within the Godhead because they loved each other. This same God was at one and the same time an outward-facing God, a missional, saving God. This is the inside-out of God. This is an unknowable mystery of God that before Adam and Eve had ever taken a bite of the apple, Jesus had already laid down his life to save them from their sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him the Greek word for world in these verses that are so well known to us. The the Greek word for world here is cosmos. This is the cosmic Christ who is not only Redeemer, Savior, Messiah, but who is also the logos of God, the interior logic of God, the word of God. The first lines of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. This is the inward nature of God, the logos of God being poured out in one great act of creation, of creativity, of beauty and intelligence, of harmony and purpose, a world being spoken into existence, galaxies being birthed, the sun, the moon, the stars being hung in their place, glaciers forming, volcanoes erupting, whales and hummingbirds, and humans, humans, the crowning jewel of God's creative intention. The breath of God breathed into us and the blood of God poured out over us. We are created both fierce and fragile. But to help us with our nature, Jesus makes a promise to his disciples. I'm reading from John 14, beginning in verse 16, verses 16 through 20. Jesus makes a promise to his disciples saying, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Here Jesus is somehow describing this great ecosystem of salvation, of eternal life. How we, through faith in Christ, are caught up into this inward-facing God of utter love and joy. And we are put right in the center of this love, this splash zone of God love. And then we are sent out. Just as Jesus was, we are sent out to lay down any glory of our own, to give all glory to God, and to be part of God's eternal purpose. Bottom line, God created the world not to get more love, but to give more love. And here's where we come to the ongoing, outward-facing work of the church, the spiritual body of Christ. A good friend and colleague of ours, Reverend Dr. Elias Dantas, was here at Bel Air several months ago, and he reminded us that we, all of us, are part of the narrative of Acts chapter 29. Yeah, there was dead silence then, too. And then it started to dawn on us, hang on, there is no Acts chapter 29 in the Bible. The last chapter of Acts is chapter 28, to which Elias said, exactly. Elias reminded us that there is the finished work of Christ, and there is also the unfinished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ is the cross. Once and for all, Christ died for us. Nothing can be added to Christ's perfect work to ensure our salvation. It is finished. But the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark both end on a command of the resurrected Christ to his disciples. Go, go and make disciples of all nations. Go into the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. If this were a Star Wars trilogy, we would know that the ending is just the beginning of something that is going to last for a long time, something that really has staying power. The unfinished work of Christ to proclaim the good news until all have heard to live lives that usher in the sweet aroma of Christ wherever we go, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in this will we be known as Christian. This is the work of the church. This is the outward direction of God loving the world through us. It's a, a reaching for, a going to, a sitting with, a being there through us. In his book, The Maker of Disciples, Elias pays particular attention to the significance of the geographical location from which Jesus chose all 12 of his disciples. And this gives us insight into what Jesus modeled about the outward movement of God. Jesus, you may know this, chose all 12 of his disciples from Galilee, from one region. Now, we might think that if Jesus planned on having a worldwide ministry, which he did, that he could have easily chosen representatives from every tribe and tongue and nation, but he didn't. All of the first 12 disciples were Jewish men who were not from the center of Judaism. The center of Judaism was way down south in Jerusalem, the temple there. These men up here in Galilee were at the margin. They were geographically as far away as you could get from the religious center of Israel. Galilee geographically is as far north as you can go and still be in Israel. Galilee was a very cosmopolitan place. There were trade routes that ran through it all the way north from Lebanon and south up from Egypt. To the west was the Mediterranean Sea. To the east was the Sea of Galilee. It was a a crossroads of cultural diversity, an intersection of commerce and ideas and beliefs. Here, Jewish Galileans had developed a way of being in the thick of things and not losing themselves, of being in but not of, and yet still belonging to this ancestral place. We might think that Jesus would have chosen all of his disciples from Galilee because it must have been such a popular place. It sounds awesome. It's filled with trendsetters and social influencers of mainstream Israel, but that wasn't the case either. Galileans were not liked by other regions of Israel. What used to be other tribes of Israel, they really had a beef against the Galileans. They were considered rogues. They were a hotbed of rebels, which was a risk for the Jews and an insult to the Romans. It was a dangerous place. For a Jewish person to identify someone as a Galilean was at that time a disparaging way of saying, you might as well be a Gentile. That's how far removed you are from us. You see, the Galileans had long ago ceased to be recognized as true believers of the Jewish faith, true keepers of the religious tradition. These were an idolatrous people who had worshiped a golden calf hundreds of years ago not unlike all of Israel that had worshipped a golden calf more than 1,000 years ago. You see, Galileans had recognizable accents. They were an internal group. Uh, it identified them as being from that region, the way a Bostonian accent or a French accent can identify us from where we're from. When Peter was outside in the courtyard of the high priest's house, When Jesus was in and being mocked and beaten, people in the courtyard began to recognize Peter as one of Jesus' men. The more that Peter denied it, the more he spoke and people heard his accent, the more he was identified as a Galilean, one of those people. Galileans were embarrassing to the people of Israel. And yet... 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah specifically makes mention of Galilee of the nations. Another way of saying Galilee of the Gentiles. When Isaiah lived, it would have been immediately understood that Galilee was an outlier, an outcast from the tribes of Israel. But this isn't what Isaiah's word was from God over Galilee. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse one, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, but there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, those in the regions of Galilee. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah prophesied redemption over Galilee. Galilee was specifically chosen because its people were unwanted, marginalized, and just happened to be at the intersection of the world that Jesus wanted to reach. They were on the edge of the religious center. Jesus went to the farthest margin of Israel so that he could plant his kingdom in the hearts of these outcasts, of these outsiders, and forever bring them in. Jesus made the margin the center because that's where he chose to do his ministry. That's where he performed signs and wonders and gave wisdom to scriptures that had long been misunderstood. Elias Dantas says, we are called to minister to the margin, to the dividing lines between who's in and who's out. These are not lines of separation. These are opportunities of encounter. So I ask you, what might you identify as Galilee today? What's on the geographical fringe of the religious center today? Could it be Los Angeles? Could it be Paris? What access do we have to the rest of the world from where we are today, from where you are today? What languages and customs do we already know? What networks are we already in? How are we being sent out to bring in whoever is right where we already are. We are meant to go to the farthest margins of this planet. And for some of us, that margin may be our very own heart. It may be making a decision for Christ, that he is the eternal God, that he has been sent for your salvation. That might be the margin that needs to be pierced today. For some of you, that margin might be in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, our co-workers. We are meant to extend welcome and love to people who aren't like us and to people who don't like us. We're meant to turn the other cheek, not so that we can walk away. We turn the other cheek so that we can stay in relationship, to be restorers of broken walls, not those who walk away, leaving them crumbled. We are a sent people when we follow Jesus, because Jesus was sent to this world to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. We can't have it both ways. We can't follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone if we are not letting ourselves be transformed into his image in us. If we are actively resisting or passively ignoring the go that Jesus commands us, his disciples, we need to let go of whatever it is that we're holding on to tighter than Jesus. God is a missionary God. God is a sent son. God is a wooing spirit. We are told to go and make disciples sharing the salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is not from a posture of righteousness or judgment. This is from a posture of humility and love. Too often we've come to think that winning people to Christ is conquering them, having victory over an enemy, the other, the outsider. And in this posture, we Christians do a great disservice to the Lord, whom we hope to glorify. We mar and deface his nature, his character. Christ wants to woo, not win. We need to reorient ourselves to our witness in the world and bear witness to the love and compassion of Jesus, who has a heart for those who are out. He wants to go and bring them in. And so he sends us. And as we go, we cannot insist on our way or our story. No matter how right or important we think our right or our story is in all our beautiful Christianity, we have to insist on God's way and God's story, or God will humble us until we recognize His way again. And I tell you this from my own personal experience. When I first came to Christ, I had been, for a decade, lost in New Age spirituality. And when I came to Christ, it was through the gift of faith, a a sudden birth into the gift of faith, into Jesus being my Savior. And and I went to seminary. I was told by many that I had a call upon my life. And so I went to seminary. I was at Fuller Fuller Seminary to get my Masters of Divinity. And I was sitting in a class, I was still a pretty young Christian by all means, most of the people there had been Christians their whole lives. And there was a book that we were reading in this class called Hearing the Gospel of Christ. And it was a book that was written from many different cultural points of view, many different parts of the globe. And in this one chapter that we were discussing on this day, They said that the lotus blossom could be used as a simile for the cross of Christ, that that it could be used to help explain the cross. And as this discussion was taking place in this classroom, I felt an ire rising in me. I felt a righteousness rising in me. And I raised my hand, and I was called on, and I said, I disagree with this, I don't agree that the lotus blossom symbolizes the cross of Christ. And I'm thinking, don't they know that the lotus blossom is on the Psychic Eye bookstore down there on Ventura Boulevard? But I kept that to myself. But I go on saying that the lotus blossom is not the cross of Christ. It is not a simile. The cross of Christ was in a very particular place at a very particular time, and it was made of wood. It's not a lotus blossom. And I said my piece, and the professor called a a recess. We went out into uh, the hallway outside, and there I was. I was standing pretty good about myself. I had just defended the cross. Come on. And as I was standing there, a, a beautiful man came up to me, a Nigerian man who spoke with a beautiful accent. And he asked if he could have a word. Of course, I said yes. He let me know that the English translation of his Nigerian name was blessing. And then his next words to me were, they have no wood. And I said, what? And he leaned in further and he said, they have no wood that bears the weight of a man, And just like that, it was like lightning struck my heart. And I realized how wrong I had been to think I knew what Jesus would go to, the lengths that he would go to, to reach people that had never known would. I had insisted on my story, not hearing their story blessing was sent to me. And I received the blessing that God sent to me. You see, Jesus does not insist on his story. Jesus emptied himself of his glory and took on the sin of human nature. He died to all his rights. And it's from this place, from the cross, from the grave, that God glorifies him and glorifies him above every other name. Tim Keller says it this way. When Jesus went to the cross, he was doing what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had already been doing for eternity, seeking the glory of the other, deferring to the other, an other orientation in the very heart of God. Quoting C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain, in self-giving, we touch the rhythm of not only creation, but of all being. When Jesus was crucified, he did, in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, that which he had done at home in glory and in gladness from the foundation of the world. He had surrendered his deity in order to get glory back. So, are we willing to empty ourselves of our glory for the sake of Christ? Are we willing to be humbled, humiliated, disgraced, misunderstood, and forsaken in obedience to Christ? Are we ready to go to move out next door, to the next room, around the world, living out the good news of the gospel. Because until we are, we can't finish writing Acts 29. Will you pray with me? God, we offer ourselves to you as servants of the Most High God. Be with us and claim our spirits, Christ. Mold us into your image. And may we be sent, as you have will, going wherever you send us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: You know, some interesting information that not everybody knows that we share within our leadership groups is that 95% of people who join our worship services every single week do so online or on television a remarkable thing that you are a part of. Our ministry that God has given us over the course of 60 years has had to adapt and change in a variety of ways. And we are in this season right now where we serve people not only on our physical campus, but equip them and gather with them in worship no matter where they live. Some of you, that's here in Los Angeles. Some of you, that's somewhere else in our nation. Some of you are one of the residents across 191 countries that are now part of the Bel Air Church worshiping experience. And I want to invite you to consider yourself part of this church family. We'd love for you to consider membership. We'd love for you to consider getting invested in more ways. And also, I'd like to invite you to give your time, your talent, and your treasure as part of the church family. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, it's an opportunity to partner with God with what God is doing in this city and around the globe. So would you go to belaire.org forward slash give. You can give towards our general fund to extend more and more ministry into the city and around the globe. But also you can choose a drop-down menu that enables you to pay and support us specifically in our KCOP broadcast television ministry, however you choose to give. It's an opportunity for you to lean into this life that God invites you into. God longs for you to simply give back to what God is doing because God first gave to you. So as you give, be blessed, do so with generous hearts, and do so with gratitude and joy that God is going to multiply your gift exponentially for God's kingdom purposes. Again, thank you, and may God bless you on this day.